everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Coach's Road podcast. Today we welcome on a very special guest, Professor Jean Cote from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, Professor Cote's work is something that we look at a lot here in our studies, especially in our first year, when we're comparing and contrasting the different athlete pathways that um, are kind of popular around the world between you know, early specialization and, and then Professor Cote's work in the development model of sports participation. And, you know, it was really interesting and really exciting to get to talk to Professor Cote himself because, you know, we, we look at his work so much and it, it's very popular, I think, in the, in the sports world to talk about athlete pathways. So it was great to get to chat with him and then get some of his insights and some of his information. And Yeah, I really enjoyed the episode and I think everyone else will too. I feel the same way about the episode. I think it was very strong. It was a very good conversation about early specialization versus late specialization and overall about the DMSP. And uh, Professor Cote has mentioned to us, I think it was after the recording that he hasn't been talking about the DMSP for a while, but still um, he has been studying it so much and for so long time that he is capable of talking about it in such a depth and such a width and overall what I enjoyed so much about the conversation like we started the call and I felt like the call was over after 10 minutes or something because we were so much into the conversation and so much into the topic so and I think what what I find most fascinating about his research and about the work he does is the question he was raising at the beginning of our conversation that how do we create sports environment that develop good citizenships and that's that is a question which is really fascinating to me and I think this is a question which is really fascinating to the majority of people who are involved in sports or coaching or or just overall in the sports world so now let's kick it over to John Cote and we hope that everyone will enjoy the episode. now we'd like to welcome on Professor Jean Cote. Um, Professor Cote, thanks for joining us today. And, and how's everything going where you are in Montreal? Uh, we're very good. Uh, we, uh, yeah, thanks, Derek and, and, and Rick for having me on the show. Uh, I'm actually in Kingston in Ontario. That's about two hours from Montreal. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, we're, we're doing well. We're doing, we're dealing with a pandemic like everybody else in the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've been working uh, remotely. Our university is pretty much teaching uh, remotely. So doing a lot of uh, talk online and uh, classes online and try to keep the research going uh, also um, through, through, through distance and through remote, remotely. But, uh, yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, things are good. Yeah, it's very interesting for me because you just mentioned that you switched to online learning and our school has been mentioning also has been also switching to online learning since the pandemic has started. You also mentioned that you switched to online research. So how are these things going at the moment, the online schooling and online research? Yeah, well, you know, at this point, it's, it's okay because uh, we've had a lot of data that we've accumulated over the years that we can process and we can analyze and write new papers. 
Uh, in terms of my graduate students, it was also not that bad of a timing because that they're in a period right now where they don't have to collect data. They're doing more their proposal, their comprehensive exams. Uh, and then we, you know, for the next year, we're, we're planning to uh, try to do uh, research uh, remotely. So uh, I think one thing that we do is we do a lot of interviews. Uh, so, uh, so we're trying to come up with project, literature review, interview project, questionnaire research, that where we can collect data online. Um, so it hasn't affected me too much in terms of, of the research. Uh, it's been a good time to catch up uh, with older data and with projects that have been sitting uh, and waiting to be written. Yeah, it's, it's good that you can uh, stay busy. And, and you mentioned the, the old data that you guys are, are going through now. Um, can you just give us kind of a, a brief overview of, well, yourself to begin with and kind of your background and then what is that um, data in and what are kind of the areas of research you're, you're focused on now? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, if we, you know, you, you probably noticed the French accent. So, uh, so, so I was born in Quebec, uh, the province of Quebec. Uh, and so I grew up speaking French and, and uh, I did everything in French in Quebec. It's very, very French. And I come from a small town, Drummondville, uh, about uh, an hour from Montreal. So, uh, so I did, uh, yeah, so, so I did everything in, in French and that never got rid of, of my French accent. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, as a kid, I played a lot of ice hockey. Uh, I was a goaltender. Uh, so, so really enjoy hockey. Montreal Canadian is my team. Lots of good Finnish players on the, on that team. Uh, yeah. And then, and then from there, uh, I went to the university of Ottawa to do my doctorate. Uh, do, well, I did my undergrad and master before that, but, and then I, I was at Brock university in, in St. Catharines near Niagara Falls, uh, for about for five years before I came to Queens university. So now I'm at Queen's University in Kingston in Ontario. Uh, it's on Lake Ontario uh, and Queen's. Uh, has been, I've been here for 20 years now. Uh, so the research that we do is uh, lots, you know, the, the, the kind of the umbrella is athlete development. So really interested in athlete development, but looking at all the different components uh, that are needed to develop athletes and, and looking at... Uh, you know, we did, we did a lot of work on coaching. Uh, we're doing some work now on parents, uh, parental influence, uh, but, but really trying to understand development through sport and in sport. And, and we know that sport from a lot of research in developmental psychology is a great activity to, to develop personal skills, to develop, uh, you know, disciplines and leadership and all these things that, uh, we want our young people to have to, to function in, in, in society uh, and sport have that it, it has that in its, you know, in its structure. So I'm really interested to look at sport from that point of view. And, and uh, so how do we get involved in sport and how do we create sport context and sport environment that help people becoming better citizens, better athletes, but also better people. Um, so, so lots of the work, 
work that we're doing now, so did quite a bit of work, and we'll talk about this, I think, in the podcast on athlete development in terms of early specialization and play and practice. And I think what that work has shown is that we don't have to make decisions at a very young age to become an elite level athletes. Like it, you, you can have common kind of sport programs that will accomplish personal development, but also performance and achieve those, achieve those goals. Um, and then recently, you know, the last 10 years, we've been doing a lot of coaching research, observation of coaches in practice and games, and developed this idea of transformational coaching. So how coaches can help people become better, better, uh, better people uh, through their coaching. Uh, and then the last couple of years, we've been, uh, we got a grant to look at parents, parental influence. So, so we did some parent work about 20 years ago, but now we're kind of coming back to that. Uh, so, you know, at Queens, uh, there's myself, there's Luke Martin, Dr. Luke Martin, who does in our lab also does work in group dynamics. And uh, we have a group of graduate students, doctorate students and master's students that are also very involved in our research. Yeah, so we, we wanted to have you on. Um, we were recommended to, to speak to you about um, kind of your, your work in the development model of sports participation and kind of the, the athlete pathway that that creates. And yeah. um, but before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your research with parents, because that's really interesting um, to me, because I, I want to work with youth, youth sports in the future. I want to be a, a coach educator is my goal, but um, yeah working with youth and, and parents play a huge role in that. And, you know, you mentioned there's some research that you guys did uh, 20 years ago, and now you're getting back to it. So can you dive into that just a little bit uh, deeper quickly? And, 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 and what are you looking at there in terms yeah, of parents? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the approach that we use uh, for this grant and what, the way we want to look at the role of parents is we're looking at sport as a product, as something that parents buy. You know, so so we're using a little we're using a little bit of a, a consumer like business perspective to, to because parents are putting a, you know sport is becoming very expensive and very costly for so so we're very aware that suddenly you know the the the, the system of sport we need people that have money that have to, to be able to afford sport so uh, so we're looking at it from that perspective so parents are investing money. So what do they get in return? And what, what is their expectation of what they're getting? So very often we blame the parents, you know, especially the, but, but I think we have to be careful because parents are investing. They're, they're, they're investing their time. They're investing their resources in their kids. So there's reasons why they're doing this and what do they want in return? And, and what, what are they expecting? And I think that's kind of the research question we really uh, want to, to, to to understand better, um, and and the relationship between parents and kind of administrators of sport, the people that are responsible of sport programs, because very often those people will blame the parents. You know why are parents doing this? But you know you, you go to Starbucks to buy a coffee. Uh, if you don't like your coffee, you complain, and they're gonna make you a new one. But if you're in a sports system and they, you don't like the sport, usually it's your fault. It's not, you know, it's not, they don't try to change a sport system. It's, it's the consumer fault. 
the parent, which are the parents, or so we 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 want to try to understand that dynamic of of, of sport administrator, our sport programs are kind of uh, designed, and and how does that meet parents' expectations and in in terms of what they want? Yeah, that is a really interesting perspective, and and one I think that you know hopefully is a little bit more kind of widely seen, especially by those those sports administrators and, and kind of directors and stuff like that, because it's, that is becoming more and more true where the, the experience is the product that your kids are getting. And I, I like that analogy. If you get a bad coffee at Starbucks, you're going to have them like remake it and they're willing to do that. And then why, why are we not doing that with sport when it's a much bigger impact on, on our, our kids? And that's, I like yeah. that. And I, I want to, um, I, would love to talk to you more about that in the, in the future, but for now, let's, let's kind of dive into the development model of sports participation. Can you just give a, a brief intro into that model, kind of how that came about, and then briefly talk about the, the stages of development um, from the early childhood to late adolescence? Sure. Uh, well, I think we have to go back and recognize the work of uh, Anders Ericsson, you know, on deliberate practice. And, and I don't know if you guys have kind of uh, saw that in your study a little bit or, uh, you know, sadly, Anders Ericsson passed away this year. Uh, but, but that paper in 1993 that he wrote on deliberate practice was a very influential paper on skill acquisition and sport motor learning and, and really uh, understanding the role of practice in sport. Uh, so that 93 paper came out uh, and really promoted the idea that, you know, the earlier you start deliberate practice and the more deliberate practice you do, the better you're gonna be and you can achieve a high level of performance. And people have really, like in sport, there's a few studies that were done at the beginning, trying to look at, and, and really looking at the association between amount of practice and expertise. And, and that association is there. You know, if you want to be good at something, you should practice. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it's, uh, it's an important thing to, to acknowledge. Uh, so, so what we did in 99, we did a paper, uh, was a qualitative paper, but to look at a group of parents and to uh, a group of athletes, basically elite level athletes and trying to understand their development. And what we were able to find in that paper is that their development was not only about deliberate practice, but they play a lot of sports when they were kids. So those were elite level athletes. And this was a qualitative study, very small studies, not a lot of people. I think there were only five athletes, but they were high level athletes. Uh, but it really gave us this idea of the importance of play and also the importance of diversification, the importance of doing different sports. So those were elite level athletes, but they were, it was a bit contrary to what Erickson was suggesting that it was only about deliberate practice because there was a lot of play, lots of deliberate play. So we call it deliberate play to kind of contrasting with the, contrast it with deliberate practice. Uh, but, you know, deliberate play is basically the idea of, of, of uh, playing for fun on the street with friends. It's not done to improve performance. It's done for fun, for social reason. You know, you go outside and play ice hockey on the street uh, or in a rink outside with your friend. There's no coach because you don't, you don't stop to correct your mistake. You just play. You're just having fun. 
so those were the two key things that came up and we call that stage the sampling years. So, you know, it's during childhood, those athletes, were, that was very important kind of, of, of uh, uh, features of their childhood years, playing a lot and playing different sports, doing not only doing ice hockey, but playing tennis and playing soccer and doing different things. Uh, so after that paper, what we did is we, uh, with Anders Ericsson, uh, he contacted me then and we started talking about putting together a methodology that would allow us to check if this is true. You know, is this, you know, you know because we were kind of seeing something a little bit different from what he was proposing with musicians. And then, so we designed this methodology and this is a paper that we published in 2005 it's an interview procedure to retrospectively to try to look at people's life, elite level athletes' life. And, and it's very systematic uh, in terms of procedure, but it kind of, you know, it kind of gives it us a little bit of credibility and, and, and a little bit of uh, confidence in terms of how we can ask people questions about their past and about their past experience. So we designed the methodology and we used the methodology with projects in uh, the first one were in Australia. I was in sabbatical with elite level athletes in Australia. So we published three or four papers on Australian, high level Australian athletes using that methodology. And what we show there again is the importance of play and the importance of diversification, the importance of doing different sports. So it was not, so deliberate practice is there but it's not only deliberate practice, it's deliberate play and it's doing different sport. And then over the years we did, our, we did papers and people have used the methodology in different countries, different sport. And that seems to be something that comes out in the research all the time. That, you know, you start with sampling, you start with diversify, diversifying. And then that gives you kind of a foundation and then, and then, then you can move on when, you know, in most sport at 15, 16, 17 years old, where you kind of start specializing and really invest in one sport and invest in deliberate practice. So, so it's not, you know, the, the DMSP is not saying that deliberate practice is not important, but it's kind of putting some stages in which, where, where it becomes more important. And during childhood, it's probably not the most important types of activities that children can be involved in. So if you think about now, you mentioned the terms deliberate practice and deliberate play, and you mentioned also that you have uh, you have been in touch with Anders Eriksen and that you have worked on that paper, if I understood that right. And um, my, my question is now here, it's very important, as you have been highlighting now in our conversation, that when kids are very young, when they're in their sampling years, that they do a lot of different sports and that there's a lot of diversity and how my question is that and it shifts to deliberate players you have been saying as well that how how does it come that these skills what they are practicing are practiced practiced in a playful way so how is deliberate play deliberate practice in a way if the question makes sense yep. so so there's so so when you think about the development of elite level athletes we cannot have a funnel vision and have a very narrow vision. Becoming an elite level athlete is not only about skills. It's not only about sports skills or technical skills. So that's, to me, that is the most important thing. And as adults, as coaches, sometimes we don't think that way. 
We think that kids have to acquire the skills at a very early age and acquire the right way to do the skill. The main feature to me of the sampling years of playing and doing different sport is developing interest, developing motivation, and developing a drive and developing excitement for the sport. That's what you want in kids. So you want to get the kids excited about their involvement in sport. That to me is the most important aspect of children's sport. So it's not the ability to shoot a puck or to pass the puck or to skate a certain way or because that could be developed. And, and, and you know, and, and I think there's a lot of people that could disagree with me here, you know, and saying that skill is, you know, but, but I, there's so many, so much research that show that, you know, at 12 or 13 years old, if you're a coach and you are, you guys are coaches. So, so, okay. So let's say you coach a 12, 13 years old, 13, 14 years old. There's two athletes that are coming in. One has very, very good skill, skates very fast, very good hockey players. And, but really you history of not being motivated, of not working very hard. The other one, maybe not as much skills, but driven, working hard. And, you know, which, which one are you going to pick? You know, like, like, and I'm not saying, you know, maybe you're going to pick the better athletes or the, the, the most skilled athletes, but very often coaches will say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pick because I can teach them skating. I can teach them passing. I can teach them if they have the drive and if they, they're excited about their involvement in sport. So to me, that's what sampling does. Sampling allow people to make an informed decision about what they want to do. So kids, you know, kids need to try different things be before they say, okay, this is what I want to do. Sometimes you can be very lucky and you're going to pick tennis and, oh, I love tennis. I have good, you know, and it works and that's fine. But, you know, trying tennis and trying basketball and trying hockey and trying, you know, football and, and, and then say, oh, you know what? I really love tennis. And that's what I want to do. Now the decision comes from the person, and then there's it. It, it brings it brings the motivation that is needed with with that. So it's not all about skill, I guess, is kind of the point here. And it's a lot about interest and developing that interest. Yeah, that's you mentioned skating, and I think that's um, always a, a hot topic um, to discuss for for hockey coaches, such as as Rick and myself, but I also want to mention you, you, you said, you know, you're coaching 13 and 14, which is, was, it's the age group that Rick and I are coaching. And, and that example you described is, is spot on. And it's, um, it's really, it is really tough sometimes as a coach to, to, to see and, and kind of figure that out. And, and, and it's part of the process, of course, but, um, you know, you, back to the skating part there, I, I wanted to dive into this because I've had a, a lot of interesting conversations the past few weeks about skating and and when do you actually kind of start to teach the technique or the yeah, yeah. Um, the optimal way to skate and stuff like that and you know it's there seems to just be kind of two hard um forces there and or sorry sides of the argument there where it's like you have to start right away and you know you have to teach them right away from kind of a um a deliberate practice kind of way where they're just skating up and back forth across the ice and everything like that. Um, 
And then the other side of the argument is, no, you need to get them in games where they're just moving, they're getting comfortable on the ice, they're learning how to fall down, how to get up, you know, but they're not so much focused on how they're actually moving, but more where they're moving to or something like that. And then, you know, it's, it's always interesting with skating because it's, it's not a natural movement in a way, if that makes sense, right? It's, it's not like running or walking. So I think this is where the conversation gets really interesting. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or, or insights into this, but, you know, if you're on that side of putting, putting the players into um, open environments, games where they just have fun and don't have to focus so much on their moving, but you see them really struggling at that, you know, and not being able to, to pick up how to stand up or how to get back up mm-hmm. or, you know, how to, how to push themselves or anything mm-hmm. across the ice. So, is there an is there a way for deliberate practice to be um, kind of inputted there and helping those kids and, and everything like that, or is it kind of just be patient and and keep giving them those opportunities to to kind of um, explore that? I don't know if I'm making sense now, but um. yeah, well, you know, I, I I'm certainly not an expert on on skating and 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 hockey coaching, but I think. The main thing here is how far can you push, you know, in terms of repetition, in terms of technical skill. And, and I think you know this as a coach. How far can you push them so that they learn the skill, but they're not bored, they're not annoyed, they're not, uh, you know, they, they, they can still are interested and really are still driven to, to, to keep playing. But, you know, I, you're right that you need some kind of a foundation. You need some kind because then it's not going to be fun. So, uh, but, you know, I think it's a very delicate balance of how much do you give them and how much. And, and, and to me, playing game, putting them in situation where it is dynamic and it is happening in terms of uh, you know, there's other players on the ice and then, and then they're having fun, you know, there, there's interactions. And then instead of just being alone and learning how to skate. So, so you can learn how to skate by doing that, you know, so you could be very clever as a coach to create smaller situation, you know, two on two, one on one in a smaller space that allow them to skate and giving them feedback. And they don't even know they're learning how to skate, you know, so so I think that's that's uh, to me that's very important. And the other point I think that I want to make is this idea that we have. You look at the NHL and the players. How many perfect skaters are there in there? You know, like like there's you're probably looking at some players that are the NHL. They're not skating that well, and there's a lot of players that are probably way better skaters and that are not in the NHL. So so when you think about the game of hockey and the game of soccer and the game of volleyball and the game of it's a decision-making sport and you need to be able to put people in in that type of environment so you can be slower you can you can be skating not as good as somebody else but you could be at the right place at the right time and be able to read the play and and you only learn that by being in playing type of situation not by skating one-on-one or so it doesn't diminish the argument of skating. I think you need, you know, you need that. But we have to be very careful about creating the perfect skater and forgetting about the game. You know, the, the, it's a game. It's a dynamic game where there's a lot of other people on the ice and you need to make decisions. And sometimes you're a little slower, but it's still 
one of, you're still one of the best players on the ice. So. Well, your entire answer it goes back goes again back to me for deliberate practice versus deliberate play, right? Because if you, for example, if we take the skating example again, it's something you can practice deliberately. And if we taking, for example, the playing example, it's something you practice deliberately, deliberately, but it's deliberate play. So my question is, what does the balance of deliberate practice and deliberate play look like in each stage of development? How much do you should do of each? Yeah, so so I, th I think that's where we need to look at stages of life, you know, in, in, in terms of how much would be important. And, and, and I guess if we look at it from at, a, at an early age, especially during childhood years, so before age 13, probably more deliberate play than deliberate practice. So, so having a lot of uh, having a lot of activities where it's fun, it's interesting, and it's you know, so, so so I think it goes so well with any theories of motivation, where you know, with children, you don't ask children to do something where they're going to get the rewards ten years from now. You know, like if you ask a child, a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, do this. It's not very fun. It's not fun, you know, do this for an hour, but it's going to be very good when you're 20 year old. It's like, okay, well, you know what? That's not going to work. <laughs> so, so I think it's very important to think about children as children and giving them the, that immediate gratification, that, 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 that enjoyment, uh, that's going to, so, so that you get it through play. You get it through, through, through fun type of activities. And then as you, as they get older, And as they get more into, they kind of internalize the skill, then they're going to ask for more. They said, you know what? I'm not very good at skating backward. And I'd like coach, you know, can you tell me a little bit more? Can you help me a little bit more? Then that's where you can kind of increase the amount of deliberate practice and decrease the amount of play. And then, you know, when you reach uh, 19, you know, or 17, 18, then it's, it becomes a, a lot more about deliberate practice. But then, the, you know, at that age, the athletes have internalized, they know what they're doing, uh, that what they're doing is to improve their performance, and they have a good understanding of that type of investment. And it's not something that is imposed on them. Yeah, that's that's also um, something that that's that's really interesting. And and, and sorry, I'm, I'm just really into this this topic. This is this is 28 minutes in, and this has been such a, a great conversation for me. I'm 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 really into it. But I I, I want to pause here for just a quick second and, and ask you um, if if you can remember your own development. You said you you grew up playing ice hockey and um, uh, um, some other sports as well. I'm sure. And um, can you look back at that and 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 talk about the balance that maybe you had and, and kind of analyze that, I guess I would say. Sure. Uh, so growing up in Quebec, uh, where I grew up in Drummondville, there was not a lot of other sports. I played a bit of tennis in the summer. Uh, I played a little bit of baseball, but you know, in the summer we had a kind of a summer house and I, I didn't do very much in the summer, but I played hockey in so many different types of environment. I played hockey on the street in the summer. I play hockey on an ice. We had an outdoor ice rink right next to our house, but just with my friends. And then I played organized hockey. 
So I think that's the importance of that deliberate play. So, so when we talk about sampling, you know, one of the very important things in the last few uh, chapters that we wrote about the topic is this idea of diversification between sport. So doing different sport, but also that diversification within sport. So hockey could look a lot different when you play outside with friends than when you play inside with referee and, and people and coach and so, but it's still hockey, you know? So, so I think, uh, you know, you can think about soccer the same way, you know, I spent some time in Brazil. Uh, they, they play soccer on the beach, they play soccer in the water, they play soccer on a tennis court, they play soccer on the, everywhere, you know? And, but, but that's all different. It's kind of a different sport in some ways. So, so I think we need to provide opportunity to try different sport but we don't have to go crazy and say you have to play, you know, you have to play all these different sports, but just making sure that the kids are not in the same environment all the time, that they have the same coach all the time and that it looks because it's boring, you know, and it, 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 it's monotonous in terms of environment. So, so, so if, you know, if, if it's only one sport, making sure that there's opportunity to do that one sport in different types of settings. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's sampling, you know, that, that's for sure is. So now you just mentioned that playing one sport, for example, in different environments can be very, very beneficial for your overall athletic development. First of all, my first question is here, why, why is it so beneficial? My second question is also, why is it so beneficial to play different sports in such a young age if we think about motor skill acquisition? and about skill transfer as well. Okay, so I think you're coming back to the idea, the idea of skill acquisition. And I don't think I can give you a lot of evidence to say that it is better to sample different sport than it would be to specialize early from a skill acquisition perspective. I think to make that argument would be very difficult to make and to convince people. So, so the example I'm going to give you, if you want to be a tennis player, well, you know, start playing tennis at age two or three and four and play tennis 10 hours a day for, you know, and then you're certainly going to acquire a lot of tennis skills and you're going to become a very good tennis player. I think it would be very hard to make an argument from a skill acquisition perspective that doing other sport would be better than playing tennis. So, so I, I think it's hard to make that argument and it's hard to find evidence to say that playing different sport would help you. But there is a little bit of evidence that playing different sport, yeah, like would help your decision-making, could help in terms of, of developing certain skills that you could apply to your main sport. There's not tons of research, but there is a little bit of research that should that. So why, would, why do we suggest sampling then? The whole idea again is coming back to the idea of kids are not robots. They're not people that have no emotion, that have no motivation, that have no, you know. So, so we need to adapt activities. We need to adapt training to kids. And, and what they want is immediate enjoyment is gratification right away. And we need to set up sports, a sports system that allows them to get that at an early age. So, so again, you know, going back to your question, from a skill acquisition perspective, probably maybe not the best thing 
But from a motivational perspective, yes, that's why you do it. And then, and then I think what we realized from the research is that it does not still affect skill too much. You can still be a very good performance high-level athletes by doing that. Yeah, that's um, a, a really interesting perspective because I think there's a, a lot of talk right now about um, skill acquisition within kind of this deliberate practice method or um, kind of the deliberate play method. And especially kind of when you look at, um, I forget the, the um, shortening of it now, um, but basically the, the skill acquisition theory of you learn um, skill the best through direct kind of isolated learning and then versus the, the kind of non-linear pedagogy side and the constraints yeah. approach side. Now I'm, I'm wondering, cause this is something we, we discussed a lot too. I, um, I'm wondering if you could first kind of set the stage by um, talking a little bit more about the definition of each deliberate pro prep, deliberate play and deliberate practice. But then also, do you think that, um, cause something we discuss a lot is if you can practice deliberately inside of a, um, non-linear environment. So maybe you set up a small area game and you still have that deliberate practice aspect when you're playing a small area game. Um, so if that makes sense. You know, I, I really like non-linear pedagogy, teaching game for understanding and all these things. You know, we, we have a little, uh, we have in one of our chapter, like a little, um, illustration of different activities in sport. And, and, and I think we, we have, a, like it's a continuum from, that goes from adult-led versus youth-led. And then the other continuum goes from immediate gratification to long-term uh, results. Or, so, so when we talk about deliberate play, there's no adults, there's no coaches. So you guys basically are coaching your team, but you're telling your, your young athletes to go out and play for fun. Or you're giving them time and you don't give them feedback and instruction. When you think about nonlinear pedagogy, teaching games for understanding, uh, I think there's other stuff, other theory like practice learning, or I think that's what it's called, practice, play practice, I think. Uh, so, so what are those theories? They're, they're, they're in your continuum of the adult-led. So, so it's not youth-led, it's adult-led. But now you're designing a practice that may not be the most optimal way to learn a skill, but that also provides some enjoyment and provides some, you know, and, and, and. So, so I think it's on the continuum, it's not repetition of a skill, which it doesn't happen very often in sport, you know, where you, you do an isolated skill where there's nobody around, but it's kind of trying to recreate the environment of, of play, you know, the environment of, of, of a game and you're teaching some skill, you're learning some skills. So, so the best example I have, you know, to, to give you here in terms of difference is, you know, you want to learn your, your backhand in tennis and you're a tennis coach. So, so if you're doing it through deliberate practice, you would do it, you would have somebody do 500 backhand and you would tell them what to do, okay? So that's deliberate practice. If it's deliberate play, you send them on the tennis court. They just play tennis for fun. You don't give them feedback. They, maybe they're gonna hit five backhand, you know? They may not hit that many. Uh, but if it's teaching game for understanding, nonlinear pedagogy, 
we would create a game. We would create a situation where they 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 play a game. They they cannot hit with their forehand, only their backhand. So that's kind of this idea. So so it's not deliberate practice where, where they just hit and you give them feedback all the time, but you just give them a chance where they can feel the backhand, where they can feel the the movement, uh, and then you provide some feedback, but not as maybe repeatedly as you would do in a deliberate practice environment. So, so, so I think you have to look at sport at, at all these different types of activities or different type of things you can do. And there's a lot of theory and models that kind of inform where you fit in terms of how you teach a skill. So you just mentioned the feedback here. What do you think? How, how should the feedback look like in a deliberate play environment in comparison to a deliberate practice environment? For example, if we take your example again about the backhand tennis stroke, how should how would the feedback in a deliberate play environment look like here? So if we go back to the pure deliberate play idea, there's no feedback. So basically you go out and you play. You play hockey and there's no feedback from ex there's sorry, there's no external feedback. So there's no adults or coaches that will tell you this is wrong or so you may shoot. But you're not going to stop the game and say, I want to shoot again, you know, because I didn't. So, so there may be, there is certainly some feedback happening internally where you realize, oh, I, I, I missed my shot and that's why I missed the shot. But, but really in play, in a playing situation, there is no deliberate feedback, I guess. You know, it, 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 it's kind of just happening on its own. So, so the, the skill acquisition people would say, well, there's no learning. Well, they're still learning through play. So, so there must be something going on in your brain the where you develop those skills. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I heard a, um, from another podcast, one with uh, Stuart Armstrong over in, in the UK. Um, he, he had on a, a tennis coach actually, and, and they were talking about, you know, um, this exact kind of thing. Like uh, this tennis coach had just gotten into nonlinear pedagogy and, and started to use that in his own coaching. But then uh, he would have clients come up and, and, and share him drills from um, Serena Williams masterclass on, on tennis. And they were very kind of linear drills and he didn't necessarily agree. And I, I, I hope I'm not um, putting wrong words in his mouth here, but he didn't necessarily agree with the, the way, but he was excited that his, his athletes were coming to him with kind of the initiative of the idea and, and had that um, in his head, but it was, it was really interesting there because the, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is um, uh, Stuart said, like, if, if all of the research in the world came out that the only way to develop skill was through kind of this deliberate practice that we're talking about now, um, he wouldn't do it. He would still go with the enjoyment piece for kids because that's, um, as you said earlier, that's the most crucial part of, of childhood sport, right? It's getting yeah, them excited yeah. to be in the, in the sport. And I thought that was, that was really interesting. And, and now, you know, speaking about the, the childhood, when we were preparing for this conversation, um, Rick and I were discussing about hypothetically, you know, we're both, we're both young and, and hopefully one day we have, we have some families and we can um, do some experiments on our, our kids and make them super athletes and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, but that, that's down the, the, down the line. So hypothetically, we, we were talking about this scenario where, you know, our eight-year-old came to us and said, 
hey, dad, I, I only want to play hockey or I only want to play tennis. Um, you know, I don't want to really do anything else. And I, I think that's such a common thing that you see um, nowadays is a lot of specialization. So what, turning this back on you, what would you do if, if, if a kid came up to you and said like, hey, I'm eight years old and now I only want to play hockey? Um, what, what would you say to them and kind of what would you, what advice would you give like kind of dad coaches out there or any coaches out there when, when a kid wants to specialize like that? Well, I think the first thing I would try to do is really see if it comes from the kids or comes from the parents. So if it's the kid coming to me and the parents had no influence on that decision, then I would say, yes, do it. You know, if, if that's what the kids want to do, let's do, you know, do it because that's, it's the kid. But, but, but I would be surprised that it's only the kid, you know. So, so very often those decisions are made by the parents or they're pushed by the parents. And then, and then the, the kids get into some kind of a cycle and they're kind of entrapment, you know. They're, they're kind of, now they're becoming good and then they're more skilled and then they do more. And then the parents are sit, telling them they're so good and their teacher and their friends and that they're, they're the best. And then, and then they practice more and then they get into this cycle where they cannot get out. And then that's where early specialization becomes very vicious or very dangerous or risky. Uh, so, so I would really try to find where does it come from? But you know, it is very possible that an eight year old could be going crazy about hockey or going crazy about tennis and and that's what they want to do so let's them do it you know like, like if it's really coming from them but i would bet a lot and i would try to talk to the kid and ask them what 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 did they do previously you know and if the kids come and say well i tried gymnastics and i played tennis for one summer and then another summer i played a bit of basketball and uh, I played soccer every summer, right? You know, I season or, and now, but really, really, I love hockey. You know, that's really what I want to do. So, so the, just the fact that they've tried different things, I think gives me a bit of confidence that, okay, they're making an informed decision here. They're not just making a decision because their parents play the hockey. They watch hockey on TV and that's the thing to do. And that's, you know, they're pushing to it. So, so really trying to find that out. Or, so, so again, we talked a little bit at the beginning about age. Uh, so I think we revised our work a little bit. And, and, you know, basically, if the kids sample before they specialize, and if they play before they practice, then it, it doesn't matter if it's 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. But, but it, it, brings, it gives them kind of a baggage that they can make a decision with you know it gives them information that they can decide so so they enjoy playing hockey let's i want to do more i want to learn how to skate backward and do these kinds of tricks and whatever uh, so so yeah so early specialization you know it's well maybe i'm going to go on on another kind of tangent here but you know i, th I think it's important to look at early specialization as a risk factor. It's, it's not always bad. You know, we need to look at early specialization at, at a population level. 
So, so, so that's why when there's one kid come into you, you need to try to understand that kid and the experience that that kid had in sport and trying to see and trying to situate all these variables together and make, make the decision. So, so it's a little bit like I use the example very often in my undergraduate class of, of smoking. You know, smoking is not good for you. And, and there's, you know, at a population level, they're telling people not to smoke because smoking has been associated with cancer, with lung cancer. And with, so you can die from smoking. But I'm sure that you guys know people that are 90 years old and that smoke all their life and they're still alive. Or I don't know if you do, but I do. You know, there's people that smoke all, you know, and then they never develop cancer and they never, and they're fine. So, so it's the same thing with early specialization. We can take cases of people, you know, the Williams sister, uh, Tiger Woods, uh, Andrea Agassi. They specialized early. They were early specialization, case of early, and it worked. It, it, they, they became an elite level athletes. But you can also look at cases of people that, did not specialize early, but 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 I guess the point here is that for every Tiger Woods or William's sister or there, how many kids drop out, burn out, were injured and had to stop sport? So we don't know that, and 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 I think there's enough research to say that those are risk. Those are risk associated with early specialization. And if we can suggest a pathway that would could also lead to elite performance without the risk then why not doing that instead? So that's kind of, I went on a, a, long, a long rant here on, on this, but <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, for example, if we think now on the other side of the coin, if, if, the, if we have a kid who tells you he wants to do a lot of different sports and he's doing a lot of different sports, when should the parents maybe decide and when should the kids the kid decide that now I'm going to take only one sport. When, when, when is the kid like psychological, physical, ready really to do only one sport? So, so I think the, the research, you know, in terms of the motivation research, decision-making kind of maturation or after childhood, where you have the maturity kind of, uh, you know, the psychological research would tell us that you know, 12, 13, you know, it, it really varies uh, among kids and among girls and boys. And, 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 but, you know, you're usually at before 12 or 13 years old, you have a harder time to kind of delay gratification, kind of, 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 of motivating yourself for long terms or, you know, so, so that's, to me, that's kind of the minimum age, but it could vary a lot across kids. Um, and, and I guess the question becomes is you never have to specialize if you don't want to, you know? So, so like, like you, you look at elite sport, there's not a lot of people that are earning their living out of elite sport. I know it's very glamorous and it's great. And it's, you know, it's like winning the lottery if, if you make it, but how many people are not making it? So, so we have to be very careful about pushing people to, 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 to invest more while they could be doing other things. So we have to make sure that we, they keep options in their life and that, that they're not putting everything into one you know, sport career 
that would kind of take away their social life or any other um, things that they can do for for living or yeah 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 and you know what I wish we had another like three or four hours to, to chat with you here but um, we know you got to go soon so we have one final question for you here and, and we always kind of ask this as kind of a wrap-up question for our conversations but um, just what is your, your final message to the listeners out there and, and to, to coaches out there regarding your re research with the DMSP and just kind of youth athlete development in general? Um, just any kind of final advice? Well, before we, before we started this, you know, in our discussion, you talked about uh, long-term athlete development. We discussed a little bit that model. Uh, it's an interesting concept, long-term athlete development. And I think we have to acknowledge that it is, it takes a long time to develop an elite level athlete. Uh, but when we're talking to kids, when we're dealing with kids in sport, they do not think long-term, they think short-term. So when you think about long-term, I would say for children in sport, think short-term. You want to get them back tomorrow in your practice with a smile on their face. And, and, be, and, and you want them to be excited about coming to, coming to practice, coming to play a game. So, so you know, long-term athlete development, it's great, but that does not exist if short-term children, emotion and enthusiasm and motivation is kept alive and is kept. And, and, that, and, and to me, with, with young kids, with children, that's probably the most important thing that what a coach can do. It is, it's really focusing on those, you know, weekly kind of activities that are fun, enjoyable, interesting, and that would bring them back with a smile on their face, excited, wanting to learn more, wanting to do more. Um, so, so it's a bit of a switch of thinking. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's a, a great place to wrap up the conversation. So, um, Professor Cote, thank you very much for joining us. We know you, you're a very busy guy, so thanks for taking the time. Um, like I said, halfway through, it was a really fun conversation for me. So just thanks for the expertise. Thanks for the knowledge. And we wish you the best of luck with the upcoming research and the, the rest of the school year. So, um, yeah, I mean, just can't thank, thank you enough. So appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was, that was, a, that was a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to listening to it. <laughs>
also just really enjoyed the conversation today. This is such a, an interesting subject for me, especially when you, when you think about all the different paths that an athlete can take them, you know, for me, it was like, I, I briefly, I, I, I can see myself really following the DMSP as a young kid. My parents made me try a lot of different sports. And then I chose baseball, hockey, and soccer until I was around 16. And then I ended up specializing or investing in hockey. And, you know, it's, it's really fun to kind of look back at that and, and kind of see myself kind of fitting into this model. But, you know, I think one of the most important things from the conversation that I took away today is, is that, you know, it's not, he's not saying no deliberate practice. He's not saying no kind of investment and everything like that. It's just saying that you have to kind of progress that as the athletes grow and as they develop, because it's the most, uh, as he said it as well, the most important aspect of children's sport is to get them excited about being active, being in sport and creating that kind of athlete for life and that participant for life. And I think, you know, if you, if you take that as the most important aspect until that athlete is, is invested into sports and everything like that. And then they start to um, specialize in the specializing years. And that's when you can start to add in a little bit more deliberate practice as they continue up. Right. And, and more and more until they're in their investment years. And then they're really, really adding in that deliberate practice. And I think that's, that's what was really important for me is just that kind of progressive nature of the deliberate practice because it's so much more important to get the children excited about the sports. That's where I was really connecting with the conversation today. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that you also, at the same time, you need to build their motivation that why are they actually coming? Um, you need to get them, as you said, excited and that it's totally related to that. You need to build their motivation and this results in that children are getting interested in sports and that they actually want to try out different sports that if, if they, if they feel the motivation. And if I think about my childhood, I would say the majority of my time I was play, playing ice hockey. And of course I was doing also a few other sports. I went very often cycling. I went outside and sometimes I played basketball on my, on my court, but and I never, never really, I never really sampled in that way that I really tried out a lot of different sports. I don't, I don't know if this is something I would regret or not. Um, I feel I feel more about the way that I'm also like thankful about the experience because then I, I know also how it feels like and now I'm much more even thankful that I know about the, the information about the DMSP that I know the benefits of it or the potential benefits because he was also mentioning in our conversation that sampling is very strongly suggested but it's not um, but it's a risk factor and kids are not robots so we always need to consider that and I it's it's always very fascinating to me that for some people the, the deliberate practice pathway totally works if we take the example Tiger Woods again as he has been mentioning also in our episode that Tiger Woods was starting to play golf when he was a two or three year old kid and he I, I actually read about him in one book and uh, he was trained by his father very very heavily and but he never got bored of it. He was just getting better and putting the hours in. And it, there, there are so many other athletes where it has been showing that early specialization works. And again, it's, it's nothing that he, he says that this is not working, but he suggested sampling because at the same time, as we just said, it in, 
it it gets them interested it gets them motivated it gets them excited and this way they are going on the long-term run they are going to be much more engaged and at the end of the episode professor Cote mentioned also that kids they don't they don't think two three four five years ahead. they only think about tomorrow and they only think about the short term and i think that's something as coaches we also need to consider when we're running practices for example if we run a practice we have the long-term athlete development in our head on our mind but if we go to the practice the kid is coming today so how do we design a practice that is short-term orientated yeah that immediate gratification for kids is, is so important and you know i i think um he he said it best like he said you don't motivate kids by telling them that this will help them in, in 10 years right and you know, I think that's that's where this important aspect of deliberate play comes in as well. And just allowing kids that freedom to just play and, and enjoy it. And, you know, sometimes it's fine if they just go down on one side and play three on three and, and you don't you don't give them feedback or anything like that. You just create an environment for them to to just play and kind of lead it by themselves. And you know, I I, I think you mentioned the the specialization versus early sampling and I think it's it's really important to note that what what Professor Cote mentioned as well is that the specializing, of course, it, it can work for some individuals, but it's that it's that risk. You know, you're taking a, a risk by specializing early, and it's it's you know there's a debate on whether or not the the injuries are increased. There's a um, there's a lot about kind of burnout with specialization and stuff like that. But it you know you're just you're not giving yourself as many kind of options um, as an athlete, right? If you specialize, and I think it was really interesting we brought that example of of an eight-year-old one of our former or one of our future super athletes but um you know we we brought that example to him and he said if it's from the kid if the kid wants to specialize then go for it if it's if it's the kid that wants it if it's if that's what motivates them then you know go for it specialize that kid might be ready but if it's if it's influenced by the parents I think that's where you get a little bit more risky when you specialize. And I think that was an important note. And he's got some really interesting research coming out about parental influence and stuff like that. And I'm really interested in, in looking at that in the future. But um, it was, uh, that was a really interesting aspect. And then, you know, the other takeaway I had was this kind of a continuum of activities that he mentioned when we asked him about the difference between deliberate play um, kind of nonlinear pedagogy environments and then also um, deliberate practice, right? And he gave us the tennis example of hit a 500 backhands and give, you know, expert feedback. Deliberate play is just go and play tennis with your buddies and then um, teaching games for understanding and nonlinear pedagogy is set up a game where they can, you know, only use their backhands. And I think that kind of continuum, it was really uh, kind of clarifying because there's so much kind of confusion about those terms, right? Like, you can't have true deliberate play if, if you're coaching them, if you're giving feedback and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you can set up an environment where they're playing games, they're in small area and they're getting that feedback from coaches and that's, you know, beneficial for them. And I think that was a, a really interesting part of the, the conversation for me. Just overall, it was, it was really kind of clarifying, you know, there's so much information about these topics out there. It was he, he sets it in such a, a clear way, which was very beneficial, I think, for me and, and kind of my thoughts on the subject. So it was a, it was a fun, talk, fun time talking with him today. 
Yeah, it was definitely a blast talking to him. And as I said in the in the introduction already, the hour passed so quickly by, and uh, we could have we could have talked, I guess, for a few hours more. But um, well, I've I've nothing more to add. The overall was a very powerful conversation, and I think we touched on a lot of different areas. And um, we you can really hear that his his expertise and his background, and that he really has been studying that topic in depth. So it was. It was a really good opportunity to explore explore this topic one more time. And I think what I also enjoyed so much about the conversation is that how much he could actually connect the things. He was not just answering a question. I was always like, hey, one moment, we need to go back in time a little bit. So I need to explain first that and then we can go to that. So there's always there's always something related. There was always a relation to his answer. So I really liked that part of the conversation also. Yeah, it seems that like everything we talked about is, is connected to this kind of bigger topic of just athlete pathways, right? And, and how they develop. And I think that's a, a good place to end it for today. So thank you, everybody, for, for listening to our episode with Professor Jean Cote from Queen's University. Uh, you can find him on Twitter and keep up with his research. We'll, we'll link his bio below. Um, his research is also all over the Internet. So go out and, and explore it for yourself. Um, find out some more about the DMSP and, and kind of the different athlete pathways and, and check out all of that. So once again, thank you. Um, and we will see everyone next week for another episode of the Coated Road Podcast. Mm-hmm.